Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. In early August, the price of gold soared past 2000 US dollars per ounce. It's come off a bit since then, but it's still a much higher than it has been in the recent past. To help us understand what's been happening with the gold price, I've invited regular guest Darren Brady Nelson, Chief Economist at Liberty Works, an Australian think tank, back onto the program. Darren, good to be speaking with you again. Hi, Gene. Uh, yeah, we haven't spoke for a while with all the um, interesting things that have been going on in 2020, but yeah, it's great to be back on the show. Absolutely, yes. Very interesting year. Now, Darren, you're joining me from Milwaukee, Wisconsin today, is that right? Correct. Yes, I would like to be back in Brisbane with you, but um, uh, yeah, there's just not a whole lot of travel opportunities at the moment. No, that's uh, that's absolutely right. Unfortunately, okay. So, Darren, I'd like to speak with you today about the gold price. What's driving the record high gold price that we've seen in the last month? Would you be able to give us an overview of that, please? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I wrote an article uh, very recently on that. Um, hopefully, it'll be published uh, by next week uh, for the Mises Institute of the United States. Um, and I actually start my article off um, in the first paragraph referring to um, and, and also a recent article by the Australian Financial Review, which I think actually... Um, refreshingly, it's pretty close, if, if not spot on. Um, even in their title, they use the title, Fear and Cheap Money Send Gold Price Soaring. Uh, and that's actually it. That's it in a nutshell. And obviously, we'll, we'll talk about that um, as the program inf- unfolds, what that actually means. Uh, but yeah, g- the, gold, the gold market's very different from pretty much every um, other sort of investment market out there. And um, Fear uh, tends to drive it, you know, tends to drive prices high. And then obviously when people feel a bit more relaxed, um, it tends to drive the price low. And one of the key factors of that fear is, you know, excess amounts of cheap money. Okay. Let's talk about gold as an investment. You've mentioned gold is an investment. Why is it an investment? Where does its value come from? Now, Keynes, I think it was, referred to it as a, I think he called it a barbarous relic or something like that. <laughs> uh, is that correct to suggest it was something from? Yeah, it's either barbarous or barbaric. Yeah, something along those lines, yeah. Something like that. I'll, uh, I'll dig that up and put a link to it. <laughs> so it obviously has value as a precious metal, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's more than the fact that you can make jewellery out of it. What's yeah? Look, where's it come yeah. from? Where's that value come from? Well, look, um, I think uh, one of the Austrian school economists first kind of um, really explored the whole history and the theory of money probably more than anybody prior to that. Karl Menger, um, and that was in the sort of mid to late eighteen hundreds. And I can't remember the exact term he used, but basically, money uh, it, it builds on itself. You know. His point was the market kind of discovered things over time and across all sorts of different cultures around the world. Pretty much every culture in the world that was ever exposed to gold 
and to a lesser extent, silver, you know, just decided this was it. You know, it had kind of um, qualities, you know, portability, uh, store of value, uh, marketability being the most important one, I suppose, um, something that people always wanted. Um, and even when it's jewelry, it still also usually holds that monetary sort of value. So it's like wearing money, you know, um, to some extent, you know, sure it's pretty, but it, it, the quality of, it's also as chemical qualities, you know, like, you know, it just almost lasts for an eternity. So even if you had it in some other form, you could easily sell it as is or melt it down and sell it. Um, obviously today it's, it doesn't really function as money as such. Obviously you're not going to walk into Seven Eleven you know, with, with a little bit of gold, you know, um, it's not very likely, uh, but it's still, you know, it, it is, you know, certainly it, it still maintains a little bit of that sort of money value, but the memory is still there. And even like, I think Milton Freeman predicted, um, you know, he would agree, I guess, to some extent with Keynes on gold. Um, he thought, Oh, once we went off the gold standard in 71, at least from the U S perspective, but the rest of the world followed, um, that, gold would actually get on to pretty much almost a zero value for the most part. He was completely wrong. Um, so putting, putting even that aside, you know, whether you agree or don't agree with its link to being, you know, the market's choice as money once upon a time. And, you know, and some economists would say if, you know, things ever went really South with, with the fiat currency today, gold would pretty much come back, maybe supplemented by Bitcoin and things like that. Um, but putting that aside, it clearly is an asset. Um, it's not a consumption good for the most part. It has almost no industrial value whatsoever. You know, it's shoved in some teeth and stuff, but not much. Um, and like I said, even jewelry, it's still, it's still kind of an investment asset, even when it's jewelry. And so the, the vast bulk of the supply of, of gold today, um, it's been built up over centuries, thousands of years. I mean, the amount of mining that adds to the to the that supply is next to nothing. Basically, it is really pretty minuscule, and that's pretty unique. There's nothing like that in the world. Even silver is not like that. Silver's got a lot of industrial um, applications. Yes, yes, good points, Darren. Let's uh, let's pick up on some of those points that you made. So you mentioned Milton Friedman. Now that's that's correct, and there's a great story that. Alan Greenspan tells in his biography, if I remember correctly, or maybe it's one of the books that's been written about Greenspan, where he and Milton Friedman explain to Ronald Reagan in the White House why going back to gold, the gold standard, wasn't necessarily a good idea. We'd move past that. So that's quite an interesting story. I'll try and dig that up and put a link to some info on that in the show notes. You talked about the concept of, of fiat currency. Now, that's a currency that isn't backed by gold as currencies once were. Yep. You also mentioned Austrian economists. Now, this isn't just a geographical designation, is it? This is a school of thought. Would you be able to just briefly explain what you mean by an Austrian economist, please, Darren? Oh, sure, yeah. Look, the economics... Uh even some economists don't even know that there's, there's actually a variety of schools of thought. Um, you know, sometimes they get mixed together, like in today's kind of mainstream economics, it's kind of become a mix of things of neoclassical micro Keynesian macro, bit of monetarist macro, and even 
um, throwing in sort of uh, public choice and also public goods type concepts. But yeah, Austrian school is a school of thought. Uh, it originally originated in the country of Austria. Uh, I mentioned Karl Menger. Uh, probably more famous and slightly more recent people would be von Mises and von Hayek, uh, you know, who moved away from the country of Austria in the 1930s. Uh, Mises moved to the U.S., Hayek to the U.K., and then eventually to the U.S. as well. And then, ironically, most of the Austrian economists aren't actually in the country of Austria nowadays, although there is a small revival, actually, in the country of Austria, too, which is pleasant to see. Uh, but most Austrian economists are in the English-speaking world nowadays, particularly the U.S., uh, to a lesser extent, the U.K., not too much in Australia, but, you know, there's some. Right. And to, as you mentioned, it's if, you know, in some respects, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't say Chicago, public choice, are Austrian, are ideological. I think they're very scientific and they separate what is from what should. But, you know, putting that aside, uh, Austrian would be definitely the most free market oriented of the schools of thought. Right. So they famously differed from Keynes, didn't they, in the 30s? So there was the famous debate between Keynes and Hayek. Is that right? Is, is Hayek representative of the Austrian school? He didn't believe that – or he differed from Keynes on the causes of the business cycle and what governments and central banks should do about that. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely very much. Uh, so the Austrians, probably unlike the Chicago school, they believe in free markets, even in money. You know, whereas the Chicago, you know, they kind of largely stop there and they, they probably, they think central banks and government sort of operation of the money system is okay if you can keep it within certain rules and that. Um, whereas the Austrians would say, no, um, you know, money um, although it certainly does have some unique qualities compared to other goods and services, but it is a good and service. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, Hayek, you know, was famous, obviously, for his debates with Keynes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll have to come back to that in a future episode. We'll, we'll keep on the issue of uh, gold. Well, you probably could if you want, just for um, your, your guests' interest, you could probably link to the the fun rap debates that they, you remember the remakes that they yeah. did of Hayek and, and Keynes? Those are kind of fun. That's a good idea. I'll do that. That's a great idea, yes. Okay. Now, there's a great video on the Financial Times website that goes over what's been happening with gold, and so this will be the standard explanation that's going out there in the that's it, that market participants are have adopted of what's happening. Now, there are two things or a couple of things going on at least. Uh, one thing we need to recognise is that the price of gold is it's in US dollar terms. So if the US dollar depreciates as it has in recent times, then that will push up the, the price of gold and that's part of what's happening but it's not all of it. And the US dollar has been weakening because of the economic situation in the US and the Federal Reserve has engaged in this uh, loosening of monetary policy, so very low federal funds rate, 
and all of the quantitative easing, and that's driven bond yields in the US down. That's made the US economy less attractive to invest in, and that has uh, led to a depreciation of the US dollar. So that's part of what's going on. The US dollar has depreciated. Another part of what's going on, according to this video, and this is what you touch on in your, well, what you talk about in your paper, Darren, it's this fear of cheap money, this fear of inflation. And we've seen that inflation expectations have been increasing in uh, recent months, not to extremely high levels, but they are creeping up. So this is part of it, isn't it? Darren, would you be able to explain what you've argued in your article, how the increase in the gold price is related to this fear of cheap money, please? Uh, yeah, look, you, well, you actually, um, you've covered a, a lot of it. Uh, I, I guess, you know, the way you put the way the Financial Times is doing it, I guess, you know, maybe it's the order or the significance perhaps that that's might differ from, you know, my take on it. Um, and the people that obviously uh, I referred to in my paper, uh, but yeah, essentially that that the, the key is there's a lot of economic fear out there, and in times of economic fear, you know, typically, um, very typically, people tend to sort of turn to gold as a safe haven, insurance, a hedge against uh, economic uncertainty. Uh, in particular, probably not the only, but probably the key economic uncertainty is, as you said, the expectations about inflation. Uh, the quantitative easing uh, is, you know, that hasn't been done before. And they not only just didn't do it once, they've done it multiple times. And, uh, and obviously the Federal Reserve and the US dollar is the reserve currency for the world. So that has a huge effect, not just in the US, but around the world. And, and as you said, Gold tends to be traded in U.S. dollars, so it, you know there's a very strong connection between what happens to a the money supply, that, which then affects, if you like, the price of fiat U.S. money, which then affects the price of gold. Um, now, these things aren't just like one-to-one -one sort of relationships that you can easily calculate and that sort of thing, because um, ultimately, you know, you have a whole bunch of, you know thousands and thousands of investors around the world and you know they're doing their own sort of like predictions and calculations in their own head and then that obviously gets reflected in sort of the, the trading price of gold um so i mean i think I'm, you know again that would be kind of i mean cause and effect is very important you know like you, you mentioned uh, sort of like bond yields and that sort of stuff um, the bond yields obviously also gets directly affected, which, which is happening with the U.S. money supply and other central banks' money supplies around the world. Then there's these kind of feedback effects because um, obviously when you're deciding whether you invest in gold, you're kind of worried about what's happening in the economy. You're worried about the inflation of the money supply. But you're also going, well, look, then, you know, but what are my alternative investments? And then you look at bond yields. Oh, those don't look so great. And other things don't look so great. So then it has another feedback effect to then obviously strengthen, if you like, people holding on to gold and, and pushing up the price. So in my article, I talk about those sorts of things. 
I also start with kind of some of the unique characteristics of the gold market, um, which is, you know, that, you know, the sort of the amount of gold there um, doesn't get affected much by mining supply, whether it's up or down and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it really does get affected by what people's expectations about what's happening with the economy. And probably one more thing to mention that I guess probably a, a difference between certainly Austrians and a lot of the mainstream sort of economists is um, we understand that inflation, and this is what actually mainstream economists used to know once upon a time, inflation actually means inflation of the money supply, which then tends to result in an inflation of prices. But, but there's a demand and supply for money, so there's not a, a one-to-one relationship. So it doesn't like immediately, if you raise the money supply, that all prices go up by X amount. Um, you know, it depends on the demand and also more subtly depends on, you know, demand and supply and asset markets versus consumption markets and all these sorts of things. And probably one thing other to mention is CPI, um, you know, isn't inflation as such. It's a measure of prices, but it's also only a measure of some people estimate less than 50% of the economy. So in other words, more than 50% of the economy is all these asset markets and other supply markets. Right. Okay. In terms of asset markets, so, Gold is one asset which has uh, noticeably spiked in value. As I mentioned, it has come off a little. We have seen inflation of a whole range of assets, haven't we? And that that is that has been attributed in part to this quantitative easing, this growth of the money supply that we've seen, and that's pushed down bond yields and it's increased asset prices as you know, mainstream macro would expect, and gold's part of that, but there's something more, there's this fear. Darren, could we explore what is this, what what do you think this is fear of? What are the different parts of that fear? Is it is it just the inflation? Is it economic collapse, societal collapse? What What can we learn from history about what could be driving up the price of gold? Yeah, wow. <laughs> Those are all excellent questions. Um, yeah, I think there, there are obviously a lot of broader sort of economic fears and political fears, cultural fears. I mean, 2020 is, is a year certainly unlike probably anything since, you know, the late 1960s or, you know, something like that. Um, you know, look, hopefully, obviously, it's something as we're not going to literally see a, a complete economic collapse as opposed to just a downturn. Obviously, we've seen a, a major downturn uh, due to, you know, whether you're a person who thinks lockdowns is something that was necessary or not necessarily. Um, it wasn't the virus as such that actually pushed the economy down. It was the lockdowns. Now, again, like whether you think you should have or shouldn't have, it's clearly because of all the lockdowns. I mean, you just closed down a whole bunch of businesses. So, you know, we've never seen that before. Um, you know, that didn't even happen during the, the 1919-20 um, sort of pandemic back then. They didn't really shut things down to that extent. Um, but obviously, we're seeing a bit of a, hopefully, and will continue, a, a bit of a V-shaped recovery in the U.S. at least. Um, but then, obviously, we've seen a whole lot of societal upheaval with uh, sort of Antifa and BLM. And again, whether you think that's good or bad, 
it's been there. And that also has economic impacts as well. You know, like Seattle and Portland and, and major cities, you know, they're sort of like business districts have been shut down, you know, not just due to coronavirus, but because of these sorts of things as well. Um, so the fact that we even we're having a, a fairly decent V-shaped recovery is amazing given, given all that. But it's, people are still fear, fearful. With the size of, you know, government, again, whether you think government should be as big as it is or, or not, I think it's, you know, massively too large. But anyway, the fact is it has a massive impact on the economy. So elections matter. And, um, you know, people, you know, are worried one way or another, whether you think you want more Trump or you want Biden, you know, these things, uh, you know, feed into the uncertainty at the moment, you know, in terms, and which is why people, again, are turning to gold, not just because of the quantitative easing and all that sort of stuff, but because of all the other stuff that's been happening in 2020. And it's not just the U.S. Obviously, Europe has been going through. Um, it got harder hit by coronavirus than um, uh, than the U.S. did, actually, which often doesn't get reported. And you know, and also Europe already had its its its, tur- its economic turmoils. It had you know the the Brexit stuff happening. All sorts of stuff is happening in Europe, and then throw into it. You know, just the, you know, China being exposed, in my opinion, for what it is, a dangerous fascist economy. And um, you throw another bit of, again, whether you're a person who thinks China is great or not, you know, things are a bit chaotic in China as well. Yes, yes. Uh, it's been a chaotic year. <laughs> we could probably argue over whether China is fascist or not. I mean, isn't it uh, China, socialist China, with <laughs> Chinese characteristics? I should, sorry, I should explain to them, you know, people don't realize what a technical nerd I am. Uh, I actually meant fascist, not in its pejorative calling someone you don't like a fascist. I meant in terms of like a heavily um, centrally planned from the commanding heights type of approach to economy, but where you do have private sector, but, you know, the private sector people tend to be part of your party or they're very much aligned with the ruling regime. That's what I meant by the word fascist, sorry. Right, that's okay. Let's come back to that another episode. I think that's fascinating. I mean, China's a yeah, fascinating place and uh, difficult to des- to describe because it's certainly it certainly changed uh, immeasurably over the last uh, 40 years, but still has that, you know, the strong role, the well, the commanding role of the the Chinese Communist Party. But yet, in a lot of other ways, it's very market oriented. So we can we'll have to come back to that at another time. Sure. Okay. But, but yeah, the point is, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of uncertainty. Again, whether you know what what your positions are on Trump versus Biden, Europe versus America, China versus whoever, um, there's a lot of stuff going on that just makes things uncertain and, and slightly scary. Absolutely, completely agree there. One thing I'd like to explore is how much of this is smart money and how much is dumb money that's going into gold. And I ask that because I have seen there are some really sophisticated investors who are betting on gold because they do see this risk of inflation or they see the political instability. There's also going to be a whole bunch of people who are investing because there's that bandwagon effect. If you watch Ben Shapiro's videos, at the start of them, he'll often advertise for uh, 
investing in precious metals. And I'm thinking you probably shouldn't be encouraging your listeners to or your viewers to go and invest in something because you don't want to be in a situation where they lose potentially lose money. But anyway, he's doing that. Uh, That's his judgment. Uh, But I just wonder how much of it could be this bandwagon effect. People think, oh, yes, things are – Things are there's all this strife out there, and we've heard in the past that gold's a safe haven, and you just have all these people pile into gold, driving the price up, and they eventually will lose money. Do you have any thoughts on that, Darren? Um, look, I, I won't have no. I don't have strong thoughts. I, I would agree. I think any market that's going up is going to get the bandwagon effect, and there's always people sproiking, you know it's not just gold. I mean, the, at times when people sproking equities, uh, sproking uh, bonds, sproking real estate, you know, there's always someone sproking something, but look, you know, we're all adults. Um, and obviously we can't speak for if there's some actual children investing, but that's their parents issue to worry about that. Um, they probably don't have any money anyway to invest. So we don't have to worry about it <laughs> considering, you know, the millennial generation are often living in their parents' basement until they're 35. Um, Sorry for being a bit of a smarty. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I won't say. Look, I, I won't say the bandwagon effect is, is large. Um, I haven't really seen anybody trying to calculate how much that might be. I don't know if you could, to be honest. Uh, but look, I think you know adults can make those sorts of decisions. And yeah, anytime you put you're investing in anything. In fact, anytime you step out the door, you're taking some sort of risk. And I've seen nowadays with lockdowns, even when you're on stepping out the door, you can be taking some risks online. Um, so no, I, I wouldn't have any great concerns regarding that. I don't have a problem with Ben Shapiro um, if, if he wants gold or if he thinks real estate's the thing. Um, that's fine. Um, obviously, they always have to be careful depending on your jurisdiction about <laughs> to what extent you're trying to, you know, have to be clear you're not offering any investment advice unless you're someone who's actually qualified to give investment advice. Um, you know, like my article... I'm certainly, I don't make any pretense of like, go out and buy gold or don't buy gold. I'm just saying, yeah. this is what I understand is happening out there. You decide what you do with this information. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So one, so following on from that, I'd like to ask, could they be wrong about this bet? Because if we look back at, what happened in 2011, there was a, a spike in the gold price. I think gold got up to around $1,900 an ounce US back then. And they were essentially betting on high inflation. They were betting that all the quantitative easing that the Federal Reserve, Bank of Japan, Bank of England, European Central Bank, they were betting that that quantitative easing was going to lead to high inflation, and yet over the last 10 years we haven't seen that high inflation. It hasn't occurred. So could could these investors be wrong again? Could we have another decade of relatively, well, we've got to get out of the, the depression or deep recession that we're in at the moment, but could we then have another decade of sluggish growth and low inflation? And that these people who've invested in gold, they're, they're wrong again. And gold comes back down. Oh, look, I think, you know, um, for the professionals, you know, even 
professionals, even people who specialize in this market can get it wrong. So obviously, and that's for any market, not just gold. Um, but I guess gold, to some extent, sometimes attracts, um, maybe, to, you know, this is my qualitative field for things. I mean, you, you could be right that it, it may attract, if you like, more of the less sophisticated investor. Uh, because, you know, a lot of people don't uh, directly invest in equities and bonds. They often just, you know, like in Australia, that might just be through your superannuation fund or something like that. So, so someone else is actually doing that. Um, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things to untangle there. You know, again, I think you may be confusing, again, you know, measures like CPI with the actual inflation rate, which can be two different things. But even putting that aside, um, you know, when we're having good economic times, which, you know, up until the coronavirus, um, at least in Trump's USA, we were. So, you know, that can actually obviously can change the, the demand side, even if, 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 the, if the Fed was doing some funny business on the supply side, um, that could be overwhelmed through some good stuff happening that affects the demand side of money, right? So in other words, then you don't actually get, even from an Austrian's point of view, um, you know, so much um, bad inflationary consequences. Um, it, it's really hard to predict these things. There's a lot of moving parts, obviously. Um, so, you know, all I'm trying to do is expose people to some of the moving parts they may not have considered. And I think the moving parts that I think are more fundamental that sometimes you might get out of the mainstream or even the mainstream financial press, although as I, as I noted before, you know, sort of, I probably don't disagree too much with, you know, sort of the financial times take on things. Um, I certainly don't disagree with, for instance, the Australian financial reviews take on things. Um, yeah. so I know I haven't really directly answered your question, but I don't know if you can, uh, you know, any investment, anytime you spend your money on anything, there's a risk, you, you know, you spend it on it, you buy a product, it doesn't live up to your expectations. It's faulty. It's whatever. Um, you know, there is no such thing as a risk-free world. We don't live in one. We're not going to live in one. Um, you know, we all, obviously all try to do various things to uh, mitigate our risk, subject to satisfying the sort of things we want to do and the, and the wants that we want to satisfy. Uh, obviously, no one really operates their life based on reducing all the risks. I mean, that's obviously not life. That's not living. Um, and you're not going to make any money um, or really sort of get much of a return. Uh, obviously, if, if all you do is try to minimize your risk, well, then obviously you're probably going to have some pretty minimal returns as well. Yes. Yes, good point, Darren. Darren, are there any other aspects of your article, the one that's going to be published by, is it Mises Institute? Yeah. Uh, are there any other aspects of it we should cover today? Is there any... Anything we missed? No, I think we've I think we've uh, largely covered it. Uh, yeah, no, I think we've I think there you know in the, the article you know when it does come out there's some um, there's some interesting graphs you know I I found a, a a pretty interesting website that had gold prices in uh, U.S. dollars also in U.K. pounds but I looked at the U.S. dollars version version that it started from 1791 and took us up to, to 2020 and, um, you know, just eyeballing the various peaks and troughs, the, the, the peaks aligned perfectly, um, mostly with, with, uh, <clears throat> central bank, 
you know, when the central banks have been really inflating the money supply. But also when you go back into the 19th century, they were also doing it occasionally. You know, the U.S. had um, kind of three versions of not quite the Federal Reserve, but something along those lines, particularly in the Civil War. And you can see, again, the same thing happened. So, you know, coming back to, um, you know, we mentioned Milton Friedman before. Um, obviously, no, by no means an Austrian economist. He's a Chicago school economist. But, you know, his, he and another person, was it Anna Schwartz? I can't remember who it was. They did the most comprehensive study of looking at money supply and looking at prices in, in an American context. And they completely agreed, um, at least, you know, on one level with the Austrians, they said that, you know, the factor, the key factor every time and, and, you know, significantly rising prices was the thing that preceded it and, and caused it was a, was a rise in the money supply. I mean, no exceptions. <laughs> that was, you know, and I'm, you can even see this again by eyeballing the, the gold price. Right. So what were those times of when the gold price spiked? Was it during the Civil War? Was it there was a couple of times, um, you know, and the, the spikes in the 19th century obviously looked ridiculously small compared to the ones um, in the uh, 20th century through to today. Um, but, yeah, there was like a couple of times when they had, I think it was this U.S. National Bank that they brought in a couple of times in, in the first half of the 19th century. Um, you know, it came in, they got rid of it, came in, they got rid of it. Uh, and so they had a couple of little spikes then. Civil War. A uh, much more noticeable spike, and they also had a um, uh, what was it? A spike. Just trying to sort of see the yeah. That, those were the main ones in the 19th century, and then then there was another one. So this one wasn't so much um, fiddling with the money supply, uh, but when FDR threatened and then actually started to confiscate private sector gold, that also led to us to a spike in price. And then later in the kind of mid to late 60s, before they got off the gold standards, they were starting to fluff around with the money supply then too, and we got a couple spikes. And then since 1971, when you know the gold standard completely disappeared, there, were, there was like a, uh, you know, the 70s was certainly uh, a decade of, of Fed, the Federal Reserve experimenting with uh, you know, printing a lot of money, and that kind of like culminated with a with a spike in 1980. And then we had, uh, I think you mentioned there was a spike around 2012, and then then we have again the most recent spike. Okay, look, it was which yeah, you'll be able to see my my article. Yes, yeah, we'll see how much further it goes. There are some people betting it'll go even higher than it has in recent weeks. Uh, I've seen one forecast of $3,000 an ounce, uh, which seems a bit over the top, but uh, you never know with uh, financial markets or markets. There's uh, there's economics, but there's also psychology. And I think what you've done today, Darren, is you've, you've highlighted just how important that psychology, how important fear is in driving these uh, these market outcomes. So, Darren Brady Nelson, Chief Economist at Liberty Works, thanks so much for appearing again on the program. Thank you for having me. Goodbye. Thanks, Darren.
We've reached the end of another Economics Explained episode, so thanks for listening all the way through. If you're enjoying Economics Explained, please tell your family and friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or on whatever platform you are listening on. Finally, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. My email address is gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.